0: This is episode 98 of the Travel Writing World podcast. As you'll remember from episode 94, we're publishing four of Bill Colgrave's interviews here on Travel Writing World. Today's episode is Bill's final interview, this one with Sarah Wheeler. Now, most of you will be familiar with Sarah for her books like Terra Incognita and The Magnetic North. And she wrote a biography of Apsi Cherry Garrard, who wrote the now classic book The Worst Journey in the World. As you remember, Sarah came on the podcast back in episode 83 to speak about Apsy Cherry Garrard and the worst journey in the world. So here's Bill and Sarah. Let's listen in.
1: Today is the fourth of our Scraps of Rule travel writing conversations, and I am talking with travel writer, journalist, Sarah Wheeler, who has 25 years of experience in the business and has made a career out of it, which is a difficult thing to do. She has also achieved something quite special. She's made a whole area of the world into her own personal purview, an area that's actually 10% of the world's land land mass. That is the 14 million square kilometres of Antarctica. But before talking about that, let's go back to nearly the beginning. You left Oxford in the early 1990s, I think. By then, had you an idea that you wanted to be a travel writer and and was it travelling or writing that came first, Sarah?
2: I think the answer to your first question is, yes, I did have an idea that I wanted to be a travel writer. I was always more interested in writing than in travelling. Um. But it seemed to me, just was sort of fitted me naturally, like, you know, a frock that fits. That travel as a vehicle was the perfect thing for me in which to express all the things I wanted to write about. I mean, all writers want to write about what it is to be human and being born, as Beckett said, under the shadow of the grave and how to work your way out of that or parlay your way through a way of living and it just seemed to me that travel with its perfect sort of agenda of crummy trains and timetables and uncomfortable journeys and this and that was a a metaphorical vehicle for writing the things I wanted to write about and so it turned out to be um, my first book which was five years after I left college um, was about a Greek island the second biggest Greek island and Euboea. Euboea or Evia, as it's known now, Evia. Yeah, Ubea to classicists, yeah. And I'd studied ancient and modern Greek at universities. I had an awful lot I wanted to say about Greece and um, about orthodoxy, which I'm very interested in, and uh, all types of things to do with Greece. And I think in the end there was too much... It was a labour of love, that book, and there was too much labour and too much love and not enough art. And I think I had to get that out of the way...
1: You set off from Oxford in when other people would have been doing a, a gap year. You did a twenty-five year gap year, and at that stage, you felt you wanted to be a writer. Um, who were the writers that had inspired you? Who did you have writers in mind that you wanted to emulate?
2: Yes, I did. Um, I suppose my top guy is uh, Norman Lewis. Like a lot of travel writers say that he's the one and he wrote many, many travel books and I was privileged enough to meet him in the late 90s when he was in his late 90s, actually. Um, And to me, he's the sort of um, word made flesh when it comes to fantastic prose coupled with really letting you open the... opening a lens onto the world and letting you see things. Um, many, There were many, and many others, both from his era. And, I mean, the generation above me, the likes of Colin Thubron, Paul Theroux, Jonathan Rabin, all those guys who were sort of 30 years older than me, they all taught me lots, and I admire them all immensely, immensely. And also a lot of the Victorian women. Um, we're going to talk about Mary Kingsley, I think, later, but Freya Stark, um, who I think you've mentioned already in your series and many of the others. um, There are an awful lot of people who, in my mind, have um, used that vehicle of travel in order to sneak in all kinds of things. And I have to say that, uh, you know, people always go on about travel writing is dead because we've been everywhere and it's only a Ibiza now and all the rest of it. But I feel the reverse. I feel that the state we're in right now uh, the more vision we can have about observing foreign places, the better, because it might help us to edge forward in some kind of tiny way.
1: And Antarctica came pretty soon after after Ibia.
2: Well, there was Chile in between them. And uh, when I was uh, painting this portrait of Chile, which was six months from the top to the bottom, um, it's an extraordinary country, as you know, 3,000 miles long and 100 miles wide, and you feel at some stages you can touch the sides.
1: A favourite book of mine, instead. Uh, um, I know. Travels the, in a I Thin Country. You
2: were there, yeah. Um, when, I,
1: when I climbed Aconcagua um, in, must have been 1994, which was when that book came out, wasn't
2: it? It must have been, yes. Yeah, it was yes. the
1: only book I had.
2: Anyway, so when I got to the bottom of Chile... Um, it, it was clear to me that they claimed a portion of Antarctica. And there's seven countries that claim a portion of Antarctica. It doesn't. It's not recognised by anybody, it doesn't mean anything. But it's incredibly important to uh, Chile being a young country. 1821, Chile was formed. So it's illegal to publish a map in Chile without that slice of a cake on the bottom. So I thought, oh... God, I'm going to have to go down there now. So I did. I hitched a lift on the Chilean Air Force plane and got down there. And uh, it was this kind of ridiculous Chilean naval base there uh, where they were taking pregnant women down to have babies to prove how fantastically Chilean it was, which, of course, it wasn't at all. But when I got there, I looked out onto this ice desert, one and a half times bigger than the United States, and thought, this would be a fantastic place to write about because there's no people here. It's just about the spiritual energy and the unowned. It's unowned. Nobody owns it. There's no wars. There's no pollution. And that's what happened. I, yeah. And on, the, on the, my notebook, cover of my notebook, flying back from Chile and Antarctica, I wrote Terra Incognita, because that's what Antarctica used to be called. On the maps for the first Explorers, Cook and all the rest of it.
1: And then you managed to get yourself yeah, that's a position. A, yeah, it's a
2: long story. It took two years. <laughs> um, but I got myself employed by the American government as their writer-in-residence. Well, I say employed, no money changed hands. I didn't give them any money and they didn't give me any money. But they said, OK, we believe that you've got something to say. We'll take you along. And you can hitch list to science camps and all the rest of it. And that's what happened. So I spent seven months in the Antarctic, including a period at Christmas, in fact, at the South Pole. Um and uh yeah, my I wrote my book Terra Incognita. And, and uh, it was ever such a long time ago now. But uh Well, it was 20, It's still 20, in my heart.
1: Twenty years ago. It's still but that in my heart. The, that was the There must the, be
2: more than that, because my eldest son's twenty.
1: That was the book that made your name, it was, really. It Terror, was, It Terror, Terror yes. Incognito. <clears throat> it was,
2: yeah. yeah. It, sold, it sold masses of copies in lots of different countries and uh, gave looking... me a bit of a purchase on getting um, decent advances, so I had to do less slave labour of the, uh, you know, work, workhouse uh, writing kind that everybody has to do, and I didn't mind doing it. But it was a nice getting a bit released from it and uh getting more decent as i say decent advances and uh i I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm looking
1: at a copy of a copy of it. <laughs> Here, And it has a picture of you in what yeah. looks like a Swiss ski layer outfit, kneeling on the ground in the Antarctic, holding a radio mic with six penguins in front of you. Well, that's... As, and it's, such a, it's, it's such a lovely, attractive well, idea. I was, that... I
2: was making a, a documentary, Bill, for Radio 4. And uh, I'm holding this old-fashioned mic there. And believe it or not, that is what I took with me. Even in those days, uh, you couldn't take digital because what nobody realizes is when it's minus sixty, the cold sucks everything out of the batteries. So we had to have some incredibly old-fashioned uh, setup, uh, which is what I'm holding out there to those emperors. And uh, yeah, it was exactly like that. Um, marine mammals in the Antarctic have no predators on. I wouldn't say on land, it's on ice. That was on sea ice, actually. But they only had predators in the water. So the extraordinary thing is, once they meet you and the seals are the same on land, they're not remotely frightened. Or they're more interested in you than you are in them. They won't leave you alone. Likewise, when the Weddell seals came up to pup in September, and they have no predators on land, so the females would... Uh, come up through holes in the ice, and they're the largest mammals to uh, give birth that far south because they've got big teeth so they can cut holes in the ice. and they came up uh, next to my camp and it was enormous creatures gave birth and as you'd expect their uh, milk is the highest fat content of any mammal so the little pups would be born right next to my camp and they would gain five pounds a day it's like watching doe rise. Absolutely extraordinary. And equally, you see the females shrink, so you can see their hip bones. And all that happens in a few weeks, and I'm just going about my business in my camp. So that was a experience, I think, that marked me a lot. I think... Uh,
1: and you followed, in that in, in the course of doing that, you followed the, the Scott and the Shackleton histories.
2: Yeah, um, I was very interested in the, in the in the history of exploration. I mean, who could not be gripped by those stories of little wooden ships and the pincers of the flow? And that camp I was telling you about actually was uh, right next to Captain Scott's um, hut from his last expedition, the one from which he did not return, but all except five of them did. And... Um, well, let me take yeah. you
1: up on 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 that because a few moments ago you said that you felt, after leaving university, that that it was writing rather than travel that 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 excited you. But nevertheless, I see in in Terra Incognita at some stage you you have said I'd be interested if you still feel that way, that um, your friend looking at uh, said I would really like to live here. Um, Especially if he was here, you say, talking of shackleton, I'd like to have been picked for his team. I thought that was a remarkable thing to have said, and a remarkable bit of courage to show I, I wouldn't have dared uh, having having heard what he'd done. I mean you you're saying I would have liked to have spent seven months under an upturned boat or the equivalent of time time crossing the um, crossing the seas
2: <clears throat> in the James Cat. <coughs> well, he's a very inspirational figure, Bill. Um, Shackleton and so were quite a few of those with him not least Worsley who was the skipper of the James Caird um, I mean it's a pipe dream because I don't have any of those skills uh, I would have been hopeless Well probably nor did they They I learned I think them. it turned out they sort of did in the end um, Worsley was a good skipper Shackles was the kind of old fashioned turning his hand to anything, pulling a sledge. He'd already done a lot. Um, I was inexorably drawn to their accounts. And it's its quite a surprise to me, actually, how many of them sort of could write. I mean, Scott is a fantastic writer, his diaries. I know that he knew he was putting them down for posterity with an eye to uh, <clears throat> commercial possibilities, the only point of it being to get money for his wife and son. Um, but even Shackleton, you know, who's a sort of great showman of the ice, uh, And many of the others actually who left their diaries and most of them published their diaries. A lot of them were surprisingly good. I have to say, an awful lot better than all the ones at it today. The, so, fro- the frozen beards flogging across the ice today to get this reward or that reward of... By reward, I mean in prize, you know, the first ones to do this, first ones to do that. Oh yeah, yeah. It seems to me that uh, I'm, not sure, not, I'm not sure why it is. It's just a question of education that so many of those guys, who so were talking about the beginning of the 20th century, would turned out to be really good writers. I mean, absolutely, Cherry-Garrard, who, in my opinion, wrote the best poetry. I'll
1: come on to him mm-hmm. in in a moment, but so you're saying that you would uh, that that. 20-odd years later, you'd still say, I would like to have been part. I would still most, say that. I'm most impressed. Uh, yeah. I love that. I would want to, um, I'll read one other little sentence that I, I read this morning again, which I rather liked. Um, when you were talking of Antarctic landscapes, so often it's the landscapes most inimical to life that are the most seductive. In this respect, they're like boyfriends. It doesn't seem fair. Is that still your view?
2: Absolutely. <laughs> It's the ones that kill you that are the most exciting.
1: So the Antarctic became that—that that was what what launched you you in a big way, and it's and eventually brought you to to the North Pole a long
2: time and, later. Bill, yeah,
1: North Pole as well, but fairly soon afterwards, um, created your association with Apsley garrard
2: Correct. And, yes.
1: Um, I remember when I was creating um, scraps of wool, and I wrote to you asking for your recommendations. You you wrote back to me with one of the most impassioned advocacies of any uh, of, that anybody wrote wrote to me um, for um, absolute, uh, whose biography you'd written, and I think it's just worth worth reading because I like it very much. Um, the book, The Worst Journey in the World, This Is You Writing, is a masterpiece, and its author a hero. A true hero, I mean, not one of those tin pot adventurers who crowd the front pages in our gruesomely unheroic age. Cherry Garrard was a vital protagonist in a, an epic feat of exploration, survived against what seemed like insuperable odds in the middle of heartbreaking beauty and crucifying hardship lost his two best friends, his health and his own peace of mind, then went and redeemed those losses by transforming them on the page into an allegory of hope that will uplift the human spirit till the next ice age. What more can you ask of a hero? Well, I was pretty pleased with that, and there was no doubt that, that that he was going to be included in the book after I read that.
2: Well, I think all your readers and listeners need to do is to read his book, The Worst Journey in the World. <clears throat> and I don't think anybody after reading that book would demur. It is a masterpiece, that, masterpiece that will last until the next ice age. And how he pulled it out of himself, I just don't know. He just conjured it somehow. It's a sort of miracle. It's a piece of alchemy. Um, and I will never lose faith with that book.
1: And he never wrote anything else again. He never
2: wrote anything else. He didn't need to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I but you, so
2: you could probably find a lot of examples, Bill, amongst other writers who've written one book. and don't just,
1: kid, just explain who he
2: was for a moment. So. <clears throat> right. So Cherry was born in 1886 uh, to what would be the sort of lower ranks of the aristocracy... Um, uh was a Wickhamist, not very happy. He wasn't a typical Wickhamist, not very happy there. Went to Christchurch. As far um, as I'm
1: concerned, that's a typical Wickhamist. <laughs>
2: uh, he went to Christchurch, Oxford, um, read classics like I did. Um, uh, and was kind of uh, finding his way. There was never any really question of him having to work. His father has, had died when he was 21. He was a general, very distinguished, in the Boer War. Um, five sisters uh, and a bit of a loose end and uh, overly sensitive all the sort of signs of uh, mental illness and distress were there very fit and by complete chance really um, met with uh, Captain Scott's uh, first associate Bill Wilson and got taken on as assistant zoologist on the Captain Scott's second expedition. Um, And he absolutely loved it and thrived on it. He was fit. He loved it. He was very good at the work he had to do and at mucking in and this and that. And he was two and a half years in the Antarctic. And during the course of that two and a half years, he did uh, the journey, which is called the worst journey in the world, which forms the centrepiece of his book when he went to collect the eggs of the emperor penguin. And the emperor penguin alone of all birds... um, incubates its eggs in the polar winter so it's dark all the time. The females swim off to get fattened up and the males stand in the huddle. And it was thought at the time uh, that um, uh, penguins were the missing link between um, feathers, scales and feathers. No, no, that's not the case. But it was thought at the time that if you could capture these eggs at a certain stage of incubation... It would be the be-all and end-all. It'd be like someone now thought, I can deliver you the story of climate change. It was the big thing. I mean, it was only 1859 that um, Darwin had published Origin of Species. So it was a huge big thing. And Captain Scott had Darwin's book in his sleeping bag. And it was a big, big thing. I say that because people often say now it was just ridiculous. Ridiculous. They did this six-week journey in the dead of night, minus 60, tent blew away. It's a bloody miracle they survived, as if they were just doing it for pure heroism. But at the time, this is my point, Bill, it was thought this could be the big scientific prize of all time. So he did that, and he did it with Bill Wilson and Birdie Bowers and then they got back and then there was another summer and the polar party set off and cherry was one of the ones who went to the last but one because it was like a relay you know no not a relay legs going you know going off and he got sent back um and uh bill and birdie went on with captain scott and they they died and so they had to cherry had to live through one winter then another winter at the hut where every night, I mean, I, I slept in that hut myself and you feel, you can hear stones being thrown against the window and they all thought every time they'd leap up, they're coming in. But it never was them. It just never, the wind. Because it never did come in. Yep. It was just the wind, yeah. yeah. And so when the spring came, um, they uh, or a team of them went out and they found the tent, quite surprisingly, really, um, buried, you know, it's like a sort of pyramid of snow. Ah, uh, but the key thing about that was they found the diaries and they found out what had happened and how Scott had got to the pole, and when they approached the pole, Birdie Bowers had narrowed his eyes like this and said, "There's something black flapping there," and it was the Norwegian flag. And they were already starving to death, yeah. so two died on the way back, and then three of them died in the tent. The body was bodies, but those three bodies were found in the tent by Cherry amongst a small team. And with the the, the diaries, had the diaries, which is why it's all been handed down. I mean, if you think about it, Bill, they could have missed that tent. Yeah. And we would never have known what happened. I mean, we know they were dead, but we wouldn't have known how it happened. And the Norwegians didn't know that the Englishmen came up after them. Yeah. they'd done their business and gone our fame triumphant. So it's quite extraordinary. And this sort of epic diary that... Scott left and also some notes for the others left, the other two Wilson and Bowers for their mothers largely and uh, in Wilson's case for his wife um, And somehow yeah, the tragedy kind of, of,
1: of Scott has sort of overshadowed a bit the achievements of the Norwegians, which is a bit sad for them but.
2: Yeah, and the, the establishment, the Royal Geographical Society and so on, made it quite clear when everyone got home or didn't get home that the Norwegians are sort of a bunch of losers for reasons that's difficult to which they put, clearly, one's, put one's foot on. They clearly were Well, not. they said they cheated because they took dogs. <laughs> Whereas the <laughs> Scott had taken dogs, but he was incompetent about using them, yeah. so they'd all died off or been eaten by other dogs, which is what they did.
1: Let me ask you for a moment about... Um, um, your views on on women travel writers, because you you have written quite a lot about that. Um, I like the idea. I read that you you were saying, well, they, it's not it's not the babies and the, and the hearth that keeps keeps them away. I took my tots with me. When did you do that?
2: Well, from the word go, really. I don't think there's anything particularly heroic about that. I just think that uh, one could apply. The same theory to lots of other areas. But you, um, didn't, you didn't take them to Antarctica. Oh, no, you couldn't, no. I couldn't have done no. that. No. no, I took them to the Arctic, actually. You did? Yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah. yeah, I took my youngest one um, to the Arctic when I was still feeding him. But I was travelling with the Sami, reindeer yeah. herders, and they all got their own of course. babies. So just yeah. thought I'd do what they'd do.
1: Yeah. Well, I must I...
2: say I was a bit put off when they said, you've got to put tinfoil down your bra because it reflects the sun back.
1: I rushed to um, to Scraps of Wool to check the percentage of of women writers that I had there because I'd had, Mm. I hadn't in any way, I'd had no feelings about the issue before. And I found that it was about 25 or 30 percent, which is not
2: bad, really.
1: Which is is not bad. It's not bad. But also some of the most significant of of Mm. the writers. Well,
2: I'm the chair this year Mm -hmm. of the Travel Book of the Year Award as I was last year. And we've got a shortlist of seven. We're deciding tomorrow, in fact, which is going to win, who's going to win of those. And with great regret, I only there's only one woman on the shortlist. I mean, she much deserved to be there. She wasn't a token. Kapka uh, Kasabova's her name. And she um, wrote a very good book about, board, called, about the borderlands between Macedonia, Greece and Turkey. She's herself Bulgarian. Um,
1: but lives in Scotland, I think. I've been uh, communicating with her on the email. She lives
2: in Scotland? Yes. Yeah, she lives yeah. in Scotland. Yeah. 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 She's a very good writer. That's yeah. a very good book, in my opinion. Um, but I did feel a slight sense of shame that only one of our seven shortlist was women. But what can you do? Well, I I, liked, would... I
1: very much like what she's written before.
2: Yes, yeah. she's a good writer. Yeah. There's no question. Yeah. 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 There's no question. Well, my fellow judges and I, as I say, are meeting tomorrow. <clears throat> to decide the winner.
1: She's um, she's Bulgarian, but she writes in English as her... Correct. As, yeah, her, yes, yeah, her English yeah.
2: language she writes in, yeah, and she lives in Scotland. Well, yeah. in
1: Scraps of War, we had um, 18 different nationalities.
2: Impressive. And
1: because people tend so often to think of travel writing as rather a British thing oh, because no, of the, no. the 1930s. Yeah, yeah.
2: The, yeah. the, golden, well, the age, golden Age. The
1: Golden Ages. You but, even mentioned the Golden Age. Well, there
2: was two this, Golden Ages, wasn't yeah.
1: there? It was the 30s and the 70s. Yes, but hopefully. They're talking of Britain, but not talking of the of the rest of the world. So I was very pleased. Again, without having thought about it, what what's, what's going into this thing? I found at the end there were there were eighteen different nationalities. Well, I think yeah. you did very well yeah. in getting twenty
2: five percent women and eighteen different nationalities.
1: Good, good. Um, lastly, let me ask you. I'm, I'm, I've I've asked everybody um, if you were stuck on a desert island. Tell me which travel writer. Mm-hmm. And or which travel book you take with you,
2: Sarah? Well, I've already mentioned Mary Kingslake, but I just think I'd like to have her by my side. She overcame everything. And she sort of thought she wasn't human. She subsumed her whole life in her work and in her enjoyment of the other. She had a very closeted Victorian upbringing and no education at all. And she really came alive when she was among... African people and she said uh, I don't know why we'd bother sending missionaries here they should be sending missionaries back to us because they have a much more honest way of living I just think she'd be a fantastic companion I'm sure she'd hate me but I reckon I could bring her round
1: And that, and the book you would take would be her West Africa book
2: Travels in West Africa Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's not yeah. very big but it's, I
0: entirely agree with you. I think it would be a wonderful I'm choice.
2: Glad, I'm glad,
0: yeah. Wonderful choice.
2: Yeah, thank you.
0: You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com slash support.